Hello, everyone. Hey, I'm Ashley. And I'm Tania. You're listening to yet another episode of Hue I Do, the podcast that is discussing your attachment style. This is another one of those marriage episodes. And it was so good, y'all. It was so good. It really was. I think we learned a lot in regards to therapy, marriage counseling, you know, the different styles. This was a great topic. This will be something that you may want to share with your partner, to be honest. We know you're going to enjoy. So please let us know, you know. Wherever you listen to us, let us know that how you felt, you know, about this episode. We have a very, very special guest with us on the show today. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Yvette Spears. I'm a therapist located here in the triad of North Carolina, but I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and sometimes I miss home, <laughs> but I'm enjoying North Carolina. I got both the mountains and the coast, so it's pretty awesome. <laughs> and you get snow, right? Like, do y'all get snow? Probably more than we do. I'm in the middle of the state, so oh. we get snow, but we treat it like Atlanta, which I love, where it's like, you know, oh, it's snow. We're not going anywhere tomorrow. <laughs> Let me tell that we need to move. <laughs> I love a good shutdown because of the snow, but I also love snow. Yeah. It looks yeah. pretty and it's great. Um, you can still get out, but every now and then, mm-hmm. if you just don't feel like it, you don't. You don't have to. I love mm-hmm. that. Exactly. Exactly. Like well, you had a snow day, what was it, last month? Mm-hmm. Something like that. I mean. Yeah. It, it was barely Barely. Here. Barely. I still had to go hours. to work that day. Right. <laughs> it was a delayed opening. That's so right. <laughs> I was so upset. Anyways, Atlanta misses you, but I don't think you're missing much. Atlanta's getting wild these days. But yeah, I'm pretty sure you know all about it. Definitely. Because um, family is still there. So I check in, come in on a quarterly basis. But it is nice to be like, I'm going to go back where things aren't as true. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, we are excited to have you on. We are discussing attachment theory-based therapy and communication styles. And we both really think this is going to be like a good meaty episode. We already we already feel it. Um, but before we get there, like, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like what brought you to the industry? Um, how long have you been in it? And anything you feel like sharing. Not to give a shameless plug, but I graduated from the University of Georgia for undergrad, and my focus was family and consumer science, and it actually bred a love of developmental psychology. So my undergraduate degrees are in psychology and child and family development, and so I found a really awesome opportunity to put the two together by becoming a marriage and family therapist. But in my study of development, I stumbled upon attachment styles and really lit up with trying to understand how things can really impact how we connect with one another, um, knowing that things can 
be somewhat ingrained and that it really is important when you're talking about relationships. And it brought me back to going, coming to North Carolina, even to go to Appalachian State to study marriage and family therapy. And it gave me the opportunity to work more, study more, understand the impact of things that can disrupt that feeling of security. Um, And it actually has me working with combat veterans and survivors of military sexual trauma right now as a family therapist, where I try to not only help the veteran understand themselves and the feelings of insecurity that they might have because of trauma and risks that they had, but also educating family members so that they can still have that feeling of connection without feeling as fragmented. Very good. Yes. Okay. I mean, we have, I want to say a lot of veteran followers, but we do have a significant portion where they were in the military at some point and maybe they're out now. Our best friend is a Marine. My other best friend is in the reserve, but I'm always thinking about how black military people aren't, necessarily portrayed when you think of like military and like you know america and like ptsd and things like that Mm -hmm. um so that's great and i'm glad you're in this space because we definitely need more black mental health professionals to Mm -hmm. help us not only diagnose and like be able to treat these issues but you know to be able to relate to us as well when you know we're going through so excited, like I said, and I'll mm-hmm. say it again. I'm always <laughs> it's excited. It's an opportunity to actually make a secure space and talk about things because being yeah. black folk or even people of color, we're often taught just pray about it or don't talk about it. So I'm glad to be here and encourage the things that we all embrace. We all embrace the desire for security and connection. And we want to be married too. We want to be happily married. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes we have so much like childhood trauma or just things that occurred in the past that maybe you don't think of it as traumatic, but it's still really a part of like how you are now and how you behave and how you even have relationships. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Then it is time for us to play this or that, which as you know, if you are a long-term listener, you know exactly what this is. If you've never listened before until today, You might know what it is, but it's basically like an Instagram game where you pick between one option or the other and say why. But our this or that is a little bit more complex. We try to give you something to actually think about um, versus (laughs) what pair of shoes, this one or that one. Like We try to go with the theme of the episode, the theme of the conversation. So... Because you are our guest, you will start first, and then Tania will answer, and then I'll circle us back around. So, to start, would you prefer to have, so all of these is the same kind of template of, would you prefer this spouse or that spouse? But we're going to break down the characteristics of said spouse. So, a little, little disclaimer there. Look at Tania, already sweating bullets, <laughs> trying to figure out how is this Yes. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So first round, would you prefer to have the spouse that tells everything to their mama? Or would you prefer to have the spouse that keeps everything inside? Oh, <laughs> I honestly 
despite it irking me because of the sense of privacy that I have, I would still prefer the one that tells everything to his mother, not as a, I need to defend myself, but at least there could be an open dialogue. Cause as well, if that was one of the things I brought up is I don't like the fact that you tell everything to your mother, that would be one of the things brought up. And so there could be a discussion versus that constant having to pull. How are you feeling today? It seems like you're mad. Are you giving me the silent treatment? Very, very good answer. Okay. Tania? So without giving too much information away, (laughs) I think I will say that I prefer the partner who doesn't tell their mom everything. And the only reason why I say that is because, you know, there's some things that... in my mind, I feel like should be handled between the both of us. You know, the the communication aspect should be there. However, you know, I don't think he should tell everything, but I do believe that there's some things that we should, you know, um, let our parents, and not just his mom, but both our parents know, just so, you know, if they want to pray for us, they can and support us in that aspect. Ooh, everything to their mom or everything inside, like... It depends on, like, who his mama is (laughs) that would bother me, you know? Like, I guess, I mean, just assuming, don't know how mama is. Mama could be the one that, like, hears this story from her son and it comes back to you and then she's upset and or trying to be in the middle. So I would prefer the spouse that keeps everything inside because that's easier than the mama that wants to get in the middle of your business. Round two. The spouse that knows it all or the spouse that seeks validation a lot? I would have to say seeks validation just out of knowing that I want to reassure that I see you and understand what's going on. And even if some part of that is saying, you know, you are so insightful or you do give me great information versus, oh, you know everything already. That's just going to make me shut down and say, then why are we even together? (laughs) That is very real. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to say the same thing. However, <laughs> I honestly, you know, those who seek validation, like just all the time, that would kind of drive me crazy. Like depending on the role that he or she, you know, plays, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. I've dated both of these. So Mm -hmm. the know-it-all pisses me off to high heavens because you don't know it all. You don't. (laughs) Um, But then also the one that is constantly needing validation and approval. Oh my gosh. It's like, how many times can I tell you something and you actually believe, like, are you going to believe it or not? And I know that's not like a quick fix, but it can be annoying and frustrating on that person when it's like, I am telling you these things, like you look fine or, or like you're smart or you do deserve that raise or whatever it is. And they don't believe it. So I hate that. I'm going to say this, I'm going to go with the know-it-all and I can't stand the know-it-all, but I rather, again, <laughs> let me deal with that because I've had a more successful relationship with the know-it-all than <laughs> any validation. Oh, 
Oh, all right. But you fact checking every single day. And I feel like I don't want to say I'm a know-it-all. I try to like, I feel like I know some things, but I also let you like, if you know something or, or if I'm, if I think I know it, I'm going to say, I think I know it, but you may, you may, but the, but the know-it-all would be, oh, well, you think you know it. Let me pull it up and prove what the real answer. And that, that, whew, all right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anywho. Like the one right. that seeks constant validation can mm-hmm. have its downside because the moment you stop giving that validation, they go outside to look for it. And that's. Ooh, I did not think about that. Goodness. Oh, we getting deep. <laughs> you can always tell like when the this or that get a little. Yeah, right. a little lengthy, like, little meaty, yeah. Right. It's like mm-hmm. you look up and it's 30 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> we still on this and that. Anyways, before we okay. get there. <laughs> right. All right. So round three. Would you prefer to have the spouse that feels helpless or the spouse that expects to be disappointed? So almost the same, but kind of different. Where like the helpless one is just kind of like they don't they don't know what to do and they feel like they just can't do anything. But the one that's expecting to be disappointed is like, why do I even try? Because I already know this isn't going to work out. <laughs> like to me. <laughs> I don't like that one. Um, <laughs> she doesn't either. Learned helplessness pisses me off. Like to no end, like it makes me feel manipulated and you're taking advantage. Like, as much as I desire to be a helper and to care for people, you can't do anything, <laughs> anything <laughs> that, that bothers me, that, that bothers me greatly to my soul, but also just the idea that you anticipate being disappointed. The rebellious part of me would say, I'm going to prove you wrong. So I'll take that. Like, sure. I know you're already going to be negative, but I-, I like to, you know, prove you wrong. <laughs> you're going for the challenge. I like it. <laughs> Tania, helpless or? Honestly, I think I'm with Yvette on this one. I mean, if you're feeling helpless, but then, I don't know. I don't know. I really hate this one, to be honest. But I'm going to go with you being disappointed, you know, because like Yvette said, you know, I can always prove you wrong. But like on every situation, refer back to the Bible and, you know, where it says, you know, you got to have faith as a mustard seed. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of hard to believe it at times, but, you know, God always comes through. So, so that will also make me upset. But for the sake of this question, yes, I will, I will say the one who is always disappointed. Mm-hmm. All right. He was about to go to church in a second. I felt it. <laughs> but then you brought us back. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Helpless to me feels like you a sniff away from just being lazy. Because it's like, if you feel helpless, then are you even going to try? Whereas like, if you expect to be disappointed, you still may be trying, but you just feel like you're just naturally pessimistic. So you feel like you already know what the outcome is going to be. And I lucky feel like I'm already kind of that way too. So we may be, that's not good, but I could deal with that more so than the helpless buddy. All right. So the final round, would you prefer the spouse that wears their heart on their sleeve 
or the spouse that is emotionally distant? Oh, I'm going to say where's their heart on their sleeve. Um, because disclaimer, don't judge me as a therapist. I am guarded. <laughs> so I need someone that's going to be like, come on, I just love this. And it's like your enthusiasm kind of bleeds over. And I would love that. It just, it would be that balance thing. <laughs> okay. Can it be a mixture? Like, <laughs> because I've been with someone who wears their heart on their sleeve in it. I'm like, some days it was okay, but some days it was like, bruh, calm down. But then also I've been with someone who's been emotionally detached. And, and, and of course that drove me crazy. Um, so uh, the person who wears their heart on their sleeve, just for the sake of this question, but I would actually want a combination. Yeah, I'll take the heart on their sleeve too. It, it, it may be a little much, but at least I know how you're feeling at all times and I'm not having to like dig it out because that to me feels like work. And then if I have to do that all the time, I'm just going to emotionally shut down because why? No, I'm not. I'm not trying to do that type of work. So now we're done with this or that. <laughs> It's Thank God, because <laughs> <laughs> when you said last question, I was like, hallelujah, because, yeah. I'd be putting her through the ringer. Like, you just get to deal with these four questions at a time, and then you go on to your life. So you go through these four questions, sometimes twice a week, <laughs> back to back to back. <sighs> but, you know, I want us to think, you know. I want us to have something to kind of chew on and maybe maybe something that feels a little familiar because it makes you consider the things and what you really can tolerate and what you're like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. Anyway, mm-hmm. so like we said at the top of the show, we're talking about attachment theory and communication styles and um, really just talking through this, maybe in a perspective that you aren't aware of, um, because maybe you've never heard of attachment theory. Maybe you don't know what your attachment style is, um, or your partner, or your spouse. Um, and so I think once you kind of like know some of this, a lot of stuff makes sense. Like I remember... I can't remember what year it was when I was in school, but I learned about attachment theory. And that was like the most eye-opening class um, in, and not even class, just like that section of psychology. And I can't even remember what type of psychology it was, probably social, I'll say. But um, I remember just like instantly reading about it I was like, oh, this explains why, like, some of my friends are the way they are, just based on, like, what I knew and what they had told me about, like, their childhood and things like that growing up. So I'm just really, and I've said it again, I'm going to say it again, um, excited about this conversation because I think it's going to be very valuable and everyone's going to, like, really feel like they learned something and took something away. Um, So... Now I will hand it off to Tania to start our questions. All right. So first question, where did the attachment theory originate? Um, Attachment theory originally originated with John Bowlby and his 
punky experiment that just kind of wanted to really discuss that dynamic of attachment um, or nature versus nurture. It's like, okay, if something gives me comfort, but not necessarily the nutrients that I need or that assurance that I will be safe, am I still going to be drawn to that? Or do I just want what I'm drawn to as far as oh, well, this provides me sustenance on a regular basis, so I know I'll survive, but it's very cold and without emotion. Which one am I going to prefer? And how do I find that balance and that it really messes with attachment? And then Mary Ainsworth came along and wanted to look at that even more um, to better assist in understanding what's that dynamic like? You know, Where is a child more likely to seek that feeling of security when they really might feel discomforting? So some of us might've seen different studies and videos that showed like a kid being dropped off in a semi daycare or waiting room situation. And they wanna see what happens if mom steps away. Is the child going to seek comfort from the stranger that's still there in the room? Or are they gonna cry and be comforted once mom or dad comes back, whoever their primary caregiver that was that feeling of security? And so they were able to identify four different um, attachment styles because it is possible to create a feeling of security and comfort when you're reconnected with your primary caregiver. That's perfect. Well, that is an interesting study, to be honest, Um, because I'm even thinking of like how I was when I was younger. Yeah, I'm actually interested in um, looking that up. All right. So can you um, explain all of the different attachment styles by name? After this, we'll get into kind of like how does this communicate? How do they this? How do they that? But to start just kind of like breaking down the a general description of like each attachment style. Um, so the first initial one, and I'll give just a small idea of percentage to just say that most, like if you go based on the U.S. population, at least 65% of people will identify themselves as being securely attached or secure attachment, which suggests that within relationships or for themselves, that they have a sense of confidence, that they're able to trust their experiences. Um, They're more willing to explore and do things. They're more willing to express themselves. You know, if something makes them feel uncomfortable, they're able to state that. And they tend to also be attuned with others, like, you know, being more able to express empathy in situations when they're aware of what might be going on to feel secure. Um, Then there's the avoidant or dismissive attachment style, which 20% of the population can kind of relate to. And they often can be emotionally distant, um, tends to want to play it safe. They can be guarded and very independent, you know, tends to be like, I don't need relationships. I can figure it out. If it happens, I'm okay. If not, I'll still be okay. Um, And then you have the ambivalent, which is about 10 to 15% of the population um, that can tend to experience some anxiety, can have a sense of insecurity, not really trusting that their needs are going to be met. Um, So it's here or there most times when they're doing things. It's like, I can survive, but I'm going to be very resourceful with how I do it, um, which tends to maybe say I'm going to be more manipulative or I tend to maybe numb my feelings and situations. And then lastly, you have the, the disorganized type or the anxious, fearful 
which again can be about 10 to 15%, which often can experience feelings of depression, anger, and be very passive or non-responsive in situations. And their emotions can vacillate a lot because it's like, I don't know what's going on. You're trying to offer me comfort and I might push you away. And it tends to be that hot, cold dynamic of like, actually within relationships of like, oh, you're running away from me. I don't like that. I'm going to chase you. Well, now when you're trying to pursue me, I'm going to shut down and be like, I don't want this. (laughs) And that creates a lot of confusion. And it's often because they could not really assure that they were going to have what they needed. You have a friend that is that last one. Um, I think I actually probably know one of each. I mean, I think I think we all know yeah. one of each, to be honest. I mean, you know, like Ashley said, you know, like this is either 10 to 15 percent of, you know, the population or I think he's at 40 to 50, if I'm not mistaken, of the population. And I think, I mean, to be honest, there's a little bit of all all the attachments in me, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it can vary across relationships and whomever you're in relationship with. So we talk about our parenting relationship. We talk about our romantic relationship. We talk about our friend groups. I can have different in each one. So it's not one soul. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important that you said that so people can realize like, you know, it, it, like it doesn't just happen in, in a relationship. It happens across the board. So exactly. So now that we've kind of broken down each of these styles, um, can you speak to how they communicate? So how each, just assuming that you're a person that's just in one and we're aware that, like you were saying, you could be anxious, ambivalent in one and like maybe secure in another, depending, um, or, you know, maybe a hybrid, maybe that's a thing. Um, but speak more to how do they communicate let's say among like family or romantic partners or even their friends so someone that is securely attached will often be forthcoming about their experiences not necessarily as we go back to this event saying you know I wear my heart on my sleeve, but they are more likely to experience joy, share their hopes and dreams. But if something happens, they're not going to be combative and feel like they need to annihilate what they viewed as problematic. It's like, hey, if I don't feel comfortable with this, I'm going to be able to trust that I can communicate that with you. You know, like they had that ability to communicate with a mother or father figure that, hey, I need something. If I fell down and scraped my knee, I had that ability to trust that you were going to help me take care of that versus fending for myself to do it. Um, They were more likely to be attuned or be even empathetic with others that they observed. So, you know, they were more likely to be the person in the classroom that easily made friends because they could see what was needed. (laughs) Um, without necessarily feeling a need to rescue, but still feeling like, hey, we can all get along, we can all meet our needs. So the way that they're willing to communicate is to be kind and connect because there was always that feeling of, I know I'm going to be okay one way or another. While someone that is more so avoidant might distant and detach when it comes to what they need because they didn't trust that someone else is going to take care of it. So often they always had to figure things out on their own you know, they're least likely to communicate to someone that you hurt my feelings because now I've given you an idea to show that I'm vulnerable and I don't want to do that. I'd rather be able to say, I figured it out on my own. I'm strong. Um, I'm assured that 
I can take care of me. I don't have to rely on someone else to do it. And then the ambivalent person is going to be anxious and insecure, can sometimes lash out or the other part, they can also be really codependent. (laughs) They're that person that, you know, I would say likely might fall into that people pleaser role if something happens. Um, You know, if I do find that my way of surviving a situation is for me to play nice, to give things to the other person or to shape who I am just for you to like me so that I don't feel rejected, then I'm going to do that. But once I see that that's not working any longer, I might shut down or get very upset when you're trying to be very autonomous for me. Cause then I'm fearful that, Oh, you've rejected me because of something that I've done. So they internalize that. So when we hear ambivalent, we think, Oh, that means I must not care. I'm wishy-washy. It's like, no, (laughs) I'm aware of my situation, but it may be difficult for me to communicate because I don't trust myself, let alone others. Um, And then the disorganized, they're all over the place. (laughs) Like I said earlier, it can be hot and cold. There's moments where they could be depressed. They can be angry. They can be non-responsive or they could kind of word vomit all over you. Like the first time you meet them, they're telling you all the stuff that went wrong in their life, hoping that you'll fix it, but at the same time, not sure that you will. And so they don't really know how to place themselves or they can be the one that has their guard up with everything. Like it can come off a little like they're being avoidant, but instead they just don't know. (laughs) And so it can be very confusing. They could be the ones like, you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to tear this wall down to get to the part of me that does trust and want to be cared for. And that can be the most difficult because by the time you've done all that, you don't want to, (laughs) you're like, "I I don't even care anymore because I can't figure out which one it is. And jokingly in relationships at first it seems really great like oh she's the crazy one that's going to be great in bed (laughs) and then you get exhausted when you're like I can't tell what I'm going to get each day and that's terrifying I need some stability so ironically this is the one that you will sometimes see paired with someone that is secure because they care they want to help them but it gets exhausting it's not lifelong but it's a rescuer dynamic I feel like that last individual i feel like that's the person that person is with and they do all the work and then the relationship just ends but then that person will go off and like marry someone in like a year and it's like wait hold up (laughs) i went through all this turmoil like we i mean we had to work through and like peel back all these layers And now I just prepared you for your spouse. Y'all seem like y'all are having a beautiful little marriage and, you know, babies and whatever. Like, I feel like you just described that, that type of (laughs) dynamic. (laughs) I don't know why that last person just like, you know, like when you were talking, I'm like, listen, that's the person where, you know, a lot of women, probably men too, but a lot of women, they deal with that type of person or that type of man or, you know. But that's real because in partnership, what you'll often get is like, oh, I can help them. I can save them. Mm-hmm. And then you've done all the work and you're exhausted because it seems like you've helped build them into a better person, but they're just as erratic <laughs> in that next relationship. But the outside appearance seems like it's better and healthier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is very true. Based on these communication styles, how do they process conflict? And I know, I think for each one, it looks different. 
but you know you can either focus on all of them or just focus on like a couple it doesn't have to be all of them to be honest because i know that you know this is gonna yeah there's layers to this so dependent on whom they're paired with and their attachment styles and personalities things that go into it still a secure person will view conflict as an opportunity to repair to communicate to see that something is going on so i'm going to work at it it's not something that's viewed as a problem that says that i'm failing or that you're going to reject me if i don't get it right the first time that you bring a problem to me um instead it's saying that i trust that we're going to work on this that this can be improved um they're going to be more forthcoming more likely to assert certain concerns not that they're always right but just saying i know that this is something that can be worked on they're trusting that this is an opportunity that my partner is going to allow me to figure out what's going wrong so that things feel more stable and secure while the avoidant person will likely not really engage in conflict they'll just really be dismissive about it it's like oh you have a problem that sounds like a you problem not a me problem and will likely very much disconnect or will be that person that bottles it all in and you know going back to your this or that again they'll be that one that's going to be detached is going to really not communicate if you made them mad that day um they could likely be the one that's passive aggressive <laughs> at some point in time that's going to be like i don't like that you keep leaving crumbs on the counter and instead of me fixing it i'm just going to make a bigger mess hoping that you'll understand i don't like this or likely with conflict again if they do they're going to put it on the other person. It's never going to be internalized to say I did something because it's going to be that feeling that well you failed me. You didn't allow me to have my needs met. So I'm not worried about if you feel that m- your needs are met. And again with the disorganized it can go back and forth. <laughs> when it comes to conflict like they can be the really angry person or they can be the one giving silent treatment. Um it can be hot and cold. it can be very much confusing there's no real strategy to it it's just going to honestly some part of it, even with it being disorganized that can still be the person that might be somewhat manipulative that's like oh you know going back again to the this or that of oh you did not give me the validation that i needed so i found someone else that did <laughs> and i'm hoping that it made you jealous and if i made you jealous then maybe i can feel that you might care about me but i'm not going to put too much into it Uh, that sounds like a game like in a cycle that you're continuously trying to in- assure them that like no this is like you know i do take you seriously and all of this and your feelings and it's like that one time in the 8th grade i don't know but you know that one time like before homecoming in like 2017 or 2019 or 20 2008 depend on how old y'all are you know mm-hmm. you got some 20 sums but anyway <laughs> like just uh it just seems so stressful like no it's stressful however there's a little bit of all those in in all of us mhm to be honest and i will be the first person to say i am the queen of a silent treatment <laughs> Piss me off. <laughs> you about to get the silent treatment. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you do silent treatment even without being pissed off. Like you just you're I very mean, guarded. Yeah. You yeah, are a right. fault. Yeah. Yeah. 
And sometimes I don't even I don't even realize that I'm doing that, to be honest. But yeah, but I really feel like there's a lot of those traits in all of us. In all of us. And some of them are reaffirmed by society because it's like, oh, well, if you do this, like, you know, I'm a pop culture person. So I think back to the movie to can play that game. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, we're both doing this just to prove who cares the most. And it's like, that's exhausting when you really boil down and trying to figure out I just really want to know, do you care about me? And how can I communicate to you that I care in return? Yeah, you hit that one on the head. But yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I can I can think of a couple of situations where I, yeah, that's basically all I wanted. But anyways, um, what does intimacy look like for all of them? So for the secure person, intimacy is a bonding experience it is being able to laugh with one another not just in physical intimacy but it's like hey you know something good happened today so you're the first person that i'm going to call because you're the person that i really trust that's going to have my back or if i am feeling you know a little bit of self doubt you're going to offer me that validation like you're going to be consistent you know there is that full on trust that whatever is the experience it's going to feel beautiful. Like, you know, it's the example that most people love when they talk about, oh, if, if you are intimate having sex, that you could have that moment where you can giggle with each other instead of it always being about, oh, I have something to prove here. Instead, it's like, it's great because barriers can be let down. While with the avoidant person, they are that one that's going to tell you, I make that distinction between you know, love and sex, because I don't trust love. Love is something that's not real. It's romanticized. And I'm just going to more likely lean towards friends with benefit situations or saying that I can separate the two in this experience because I don't trust that I can let my guard down and fully tell you these things because my needs may not always be met. So again, they're just very guarded or can be very independent. So intimacy isn't a real thing for them at times. It's like, I can do this on my own, but there's a small part of them that hopes that we can have that connection. And the ambivalent, they confuse intimacy um, with codependency. It's like, oh, well, we spend all the time together. We can complete each other's sentences or, you know, oh, we'll go do this thing together. We'll do all this together. When instead it's just out of my anxiety that if you're out of my presence, our relationship has failed (laughs) and that doesn't feel safe. (laughs) But that third one reminds me of like, have you ever heard of like when people are like, they're fine with having sex, but they won't kiss you. It's like kissing is intimate, but sex isn't. And it's always even still, that was always like the wildest thing. Cause it's like, you are telling me you'll have sex with that person, but you won't kiss them. But that goes back to that, that whole way of thinking of like, there's a certain level that you just can't can't do. Now, I feel like you you've explained this in a sense. Before I go into the next question, this is a, a little on the impromptu one. So, how are our relationships with our parents influencing our intimacy styles if we're going off attachment theory? Because it's like if these attachments were formed because of I guess what our relationship with our primary caregiver or like guardian, that's just wild to think that like something that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago can still be influencing how you love and experience love and romantic love and intimacy and things like that. So 
trying to reflect on that, like, let's say that because you're not going to necessarily have someone with a secure style coming from a parenting style that was disorganized, that that's not going to happen. Not initially until they come across another relationship, maybe later in their life of this is one person I knew had my back and I'm growing to have that sense of security. But ultimately what they talk about is that your attachment style is started in your formative years, you know, the first 18 months of life. Um, so if I didn't trust that my parent was, if I cried that my parent was going to come to me and actually feed me, see if I was wet or do anything. And I just had to figure it out on my own. Like, Hey, I potty trained myself early just because I couldn't rely on this thing or I had to pick and be up on the move with your intimacy style, you know, not to be vulgar, but maybe it's always going to be about me first. I don't care if you reach, reach climax. I, I finished. So what does it matter? And then if we talk about it in regards to conversation, <laughs> then it's going to be, you know, I'm that know-it-all or, Hey, I fixed the problem. I don't know why you're still complaining or I said, sorry. Then again, I'm going to be that detached or a very avoidant person. Not saying I don't want to be in a relationship, but maybe I've taught myself, Oh, relationship has its benefits, you know, or I, maybe I wanted a kid. So I got into a relationship because still in my mind, I said, this is what needs to happen, but maybe I'm not willing to do the other part of the work to sustain a healthy relationship. Thank you for that breakdown because I, I didn't even think about it in in that instance before. I feel like there's like a lot of pressure just hearing that, like, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of the attachment styles, you know, are created within like the first 18 months of life for those, you know, soon to be parents. It's kind of like you have to, things will come naturally, of course, but it's like knowing this, you want to pretty much like set the scene for your child so that they won't, you know, (laughs) eventually, you know, go to the ladder, you know, or, you know, go to the extreme left and have, you know, these relationship issues in the future. So it's kind of like, yeah, you really have to work on yourself and work on your relationship before you even create new life. Sometimes that doesn't always happen. Like we definitely need to seek therapy, you know, especially if you're having trouble early on in the relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think too, and this kind of goes into the next question. If you have that mirror kind of up and you see, okay, these are the parts of myself that I don't care for. Or, you know, you realize maybe you are clingy or maybe you self-sabotage or whatever these traits that you have and you realize, okay, this came because my dad did this or my mom did this, or this is what I've been used to growing up because this happened a lot. So with that, it's kind of like, let me try to fix these things so I don't pass those behaviors or those feelings down to my child. Um, So with that being said, can you change your attachment style? And if so, how? Well, what you both touched on is therapy and saying, I want to do the work. I want to observe some of those things that can be a bit problematic. Again, as we also talked about a little bit earlier, like within my different relationships, my style can change. And so if I'm mindful that I want to be hopeful, that I want to get away from this place that I can be negative or fiercely independent, how can I do this? How am I going to show up? How am I going to model these things to be different? Um, Because it's more conscious and 
part of it is first through some type of communication. Like, you're, yes, you're going to have to do your individual work, but it's not to say that it can't be done in partnership because you're relearning that feeling of security. It's like, hey, if my partner has shown up and is consistent and is discussing when I might feel vulnerable, I'm more likely to start to grow towards. It's not to say I'll purely like I can fully become a secure person with another secure person, but I'm trusting that we can get there because we're navigating more of these conversations that I'm relearning myself and being able to say, I know my vulnerability, not out of desire to blame someone else for what happened. It's just a reality that I've created my sense of security. I'm trying to engage someone else to build that and having some patience with yourself. But the biggest thing that they ever looked at when they talk about forming that secure attachment, it is about, you know, being prompt, being more sensitive to your emotions and just being consistent. Doesn't mean a hundred percent, but it's like, at least 80, 85%. If I know that when I call this person, they're going to pick up and talk through with me or that they're going to respond to at least understand what I'm going through, that starts to move me away from what might've been my primary attachment style. What's the difference between attachment theory-based counseling versus other styles? Attachment theory-based counseling Um, First, to make a distinction, attachment-based therapy can be individualized and they look at it with kids and just literally trying to look at the physicality between parent and child. Attachment theory-based therapies, um, one of the primary ones when you're looking at couples is called emotion-focused therapy, which is understanding a desire for security on both parts. And you're trying to collaborate a conversation that understands that you're trying to make a repair, that there's been an attachment injury. So if I tell you that I felt betrayed by infidelity, I know that you're witnessing that, you're hearing that. And so attachment theory-based is saying, I'm conscious of a feeling of security, consistency, and stability, why that's pertinent to the relationship. And first I have to understand what happened to make me feel that I could not trust in that. Um, Other types of therapies, and I'm speaking from couples because that's the work is saying that yes I'm aware of the need for communication and to build repair and the importance of trust but it's not necessarily saying I'm going to label you as avoidant dismissive or secure I'm just going to hear you from the emotion that you're coming from Um, so one therapy that I look at with that regards is um, internal family systems and for couples it's called intimacy from the inside out And then Gottman, um, it's popular with couples therapy. They look at things as a foundation, understanding that you need to take away the prior experiences and understand that that can come from a prior relationship not being as formative and that you now need to have a more secure base and house to say that I have trust, that I'm having compassion, that I'm having more empathy within my relationships because I need to get back to the basis of knowing the individual. So To answer your question again, attachment theory is literally saying I'm aware of the four, you know, attachment styles, that there's a feeling of insecurity and we're trying to rebuild that. And then others are just conscious that the individual has something motivating their emotions and there's a barrier to the communication. Two more questions. So how do we create secure attachment between us and our children? I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but if you could go into a little more detail. 
just a little more detail, again, just highlighting that it is about consistency. It's not to say you have to pick up the baby every single time that they cry, but it's like, can they see your face? Can they be grounded? Um, do you make it comfortable for them to explore when they then become of an age where, you know, if I touch something that I'm not supposed to, are you going to freak out and yell at me and say, shame on you? And so I just decide to sit still, or are you going to be someone that gently guides and has a conversation? Are you going to model that with, you know, your future children? And that's one of the things that matters. Like, you know, are you going to be quick to respond, not out of your own fear, but comfort? So that can be modeled with the child. You know, if I feel like the other example that I gave earlier when I was describing how they even did the study. All right. So you're dropping them off at daycare for the very first time. Are you just going to drop them off and say deuces or are you going to stop, introduce them to their care provider, allow them to start to explore and see what happens. And often what you'll observe is that the child is going to look back at you and be like, is this truly okay? I need to see how you respond to it because you're modeling that example for them. And then they'll be more likely to be okay to say, okay, I can do this because I entrust in you. It's modeled in many different ways as we start to grow. Cause like the first time that a parent drops their kid off at college, is your child going to call you as the first person that something doesn't go well? You see those instances of where a secure attachment is formed and reassured. Cause if, it, if anything, like when they do get old enough, they're me like, I just want to run away because you were too much. <laughs> That's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> especially with that last one i wanted to get away i wanted to get away <laughs> how do you know who to go to like like how do you know that that therapist is right for you um, based on the different types of theory-based counseling like how do you know which one is right for you or for that couple if that makes sense all therapists in some regard are going to desire to make a rapport with you um to understand what is your basis what is your treatment goal are you trying to be more mindful of what caused that um, mistrust to begin with? May it have been based on infidelity or is it based on that detachment? What is it that you're wanting to learn from the relationship? And sometimes that therapist is going to have to model that with you on an individual basis and then also for the couple. Because most couples don't want to feel like the therapist is going to take a side. Instead, they want to feel like they're in a secure space. Most people, when they're looking for a therapist, they'll go to Psychology Today or Black Therapist Rock and look through their rosters and see what am I needing? And it might be based on, I've listed what my evidence-based treatment styles are, but always take the time to review the bio and what truly is important for you. Because if you don't trust it, then you're not going to try it. It doesn't matter what the modality is. It really is about, can I see myself talking with this individual and being comfortable based on, you know, do they have my same ethnicity or, are they willing to be transparent about what therapy is going to be like? Yeah. Thank you so much for answering that. I had the same question. Like you don't know if you're looking even for premarital counseling, they may even say like, Oh, we use this or, Oh, we do this. But you don't like, okay. I don't know what style works for <laughs> what I'm trying to accomplish. Because you can have someone say that I do Gottman method therapy or I do internal family systems, I do whatever. You can do the research, but the biggest part is going to be what allows you to feel a sense of connection. So is it someone that does take religion into consideration? Are you wanting to see someone that's going to look at the cultural differences? Because 
you know, again, going back to religion, are you equally yoked? It's like, no, we're coming from two different religious backgrounds, but we still know the basis of human connection and that we trust one another. Is there going to be someone that takes that into consideration? And that's what's more important than just saying, oh, they have this certificate. (laughs) Yeah, it's important. So last question, what advice would you suggest to a couple that is seeking marriage therapy? Trust the process. Don't view it as just a checking the box um, because different states have different things. Some require premarital counseling prior to getting your license. Genuinely take time to ask the questions. That can be a bit frightening um, because you don't want them to come up later. You know, like have the conversation about finances, about how many kids you want. Um, even saying what I feel insecure about, because if you're thinking, oh, well, we're just so happy in love and we just want to focus on the wedding, that's when the problems are going to show up most often. Also to reassure that there's some things that are going to come up that are disagreements between you guys that are completely natural. Like there are perpetual problems within relationships. Does not mean that every single one has to be fixed to say, oh, we never fight. Um, And that therapy is a checkup. It's like a maintenance checkup with your car. It doesn't have to be viewed as saying there is a problem. It's just, we want someone to kind of facilitate the conversation. So again, when they're looking at it, don't just view it as fixing a problem, view it as an opportunity to explore in a safe space. Thank you so much for everything. Um, I think you've given us a lot to think about for those couples that are engaged going through the planning process because you're absolutely right there are some arguments that definitely come up during the planning process that you may have not argued about before I can I mean I can say that even now you know in my relationship there's been some things that like you know we are open and we have great communication well at times we have great communication but you know but there has been some you know I don't want to say arguments but some disagreements where it's like, dang, I didn't know that you were like this, or, you know, I didn't think that you thought like this, you know? So I think that you've definitely given us, you know, some things to think about. And then for our married folks that listen, these little check-ins, these little checkups are, you know, are actually needed, you know? And so I think that you've given us some gems, as I would like to say, uh, you know, to take away and, you know, talk through with our partners, try to figure out some things and work on some things or refine some things, you know? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I agree with everything Tania said. I mean, similarly, like there were things that we uncovered as we were going through the counseling. And then there was stuff that came up after we got married, not to say like, oh, you know, like, there were bones in the closet type, but there are just different dynamics that appeared. And there's maybe some people know every single detail before, but even with knowing every single detail, you don't know every single detail. Like there's still something, there's still a trigger or a pain point or a memory or a thing that occurs that's like, oh, okay. We need to unpack that because that is a thing. And, you know, there's a lot of the surface stuff that I think we think about a lot. Like, oh, how do they, you know, like communicate? How are they with their family? Do they have a decent job? You know, like the certain things that we like check off. But it's like once you start to get to know someone, then it's like, oh, you figure out like 
what's their, you know, like, if they're upset, how are they really going to communicate that upset, you know, that they're upset with you? Are they going to communicate it at all? And not to the point of like, oh, you know, there are certain things like while you're dating that you can kind of, um, I want to say hide, but like, it's, you're seeing it kind of in snapshots. So maybe it's an issue or whatever, but then you go home or, oh, you, you know, like you sleep on it, you don't really address it too much or whatever, and then it's over. But then when you're living with somebody day in and day out, and it's like they snap because this one thing you did eight months ago that you thought y'all would discuss, but, you know, like, and I'm just throwing out a random example, just FYI, but you just never know. Like there could be that thing. And then you find out that like, oh, that person's like, I don't know, sister one time in the fourth grade did this thing, told their parents, the parents blew up on them. And ever since then, they're like, I'm never going to whatever. And you never knew that because you've met the parents, met the sister, met the brothers, like half this old, you know, love them on the text chain and all that. But this one thing occurred. So anywho, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, and like we said, we were pretty sure our hubus are going to enjoy it as well because you know, this is me. This is the stuff that they'll pass on to like their spouse or their fiance and be like, you need to listen to this too. And then maybe that creates like a dialogue that they can have later on through text or, you know, that night at dinner or what have you. And hopefully, and maybe it's something that's like, oh, they're before their premarital counseling stage. So maybe this helps them figure out, okay, what type of counselor do we need to go to? Or if they've already gone through it, like, oh, okay, mental note, if we just want to have like that check-in, maybe we want to look for someone that focuses on this because you grew up this way, I grew up that way, and, you know, so variety of things. But thank you for coming on and answering all these questions for us. Um, truly thankful. I thank you guys for the opportunity. I appreciate having it more so as a conversation. <laughs> oh, for yeah. sure. We're learning just as much as we're sure the people that will be listening. Like, mm -hmm. I, I can't think of an episode that we've had where we knew everything going into it and didn't learn a thing leaving it. Like, every single episode is, is yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So now we're going to move into the wedding vendor love. Who would you like to shout out this week? I would like to definitely give credit to an amazing photographer. Her name is Taylor here in the Raleigh-Durham area. She's with Cloud 10 Photography. She does amazing work, connections. Um, she makes sure to draw the person in the couple to really personalize it. Ashley, who would you like to shout out this week? I would like to shout out this week an officiant and counselor, more so a premarital coach based in Gwinnett County, so Metro Atlanta area. Her name is Hadassah Joseph, and her company is Bow Beginnings. Um, you can find her on Instagram, Bow underscore Beginnings. You can find her on Fine with Who I Do um, at fine.whoido.com. And she's one, you probably seen her on my Celebrity Dream Weddings on VH1, but she is our age, 
or, you know, she understands the pain points and the things that we go through and experience. But also if you're looking for someone to be an officiant on your wedding day, Hadassah is definitely one to consider. She has workbooks for you. She has checklists and kind of things for you to kind of chew on and consider as you're going through your engagement process. And also she has a podcast. So if you want you know, to kind of marinate on some things um, as you navigate engagement or marital life, I would suggest you listen to Mindfully Wed podcast. So that is my vendor for the week. Tania, who are you shouting out? Yeah, so this week I'm shouting out So Home Collective. This is a brand that showcases modern drinkware and dinner party goods. Now, I'm shouting them out because I actually purchased my wedding flute from them. They're not your typical wedding flutes, but I really, really wanted to step outside the box and not get something with like jewels or like our names engraved. So yeah, so I went ahead and ordered my flutes from So Home Collective. This company is owned by Lillian Alexander. And when I tell you Shipping was so fast. Literally, I placed my order and I got my shipping information the next day. Literally in two days, my glasses were on my doorstep. The packaging is so beautiful. Just everything about her brand is everything. So if you are in need of some wine glasses just for the home, or if you want to be like me and get some wine glasses for your wedding, definitely look into their site. Um, you can find her on So Home Collective on IG, or you can go on SoHomeCollective.com and look her up. She has everything that you need. If you want to be a fancy girl, go ahead and be fancy and get you some flutes. She has them in different colors. She has them in the sunset, the Sunday, the tea, which is like a pink color. And then she has an all smoke gray, which is like the newer set. She also has a tumbler set as well. So definitely look her up if you're in need of some glassware for your wedding or for your home. Love it. And your flutes are gorgeous. Okay. They really are. Like they exceeded my expectations. So I'm so excited that I purchased them and supported a black owned company. Okay, so where can people find you if they want to know more, possibly use you as their counselor or therapist? Give us all the good details. I am on BetterHelp. So if you go to BetterHelp backslash Yvette Spears, um, I offer sessions there for individual practice. And feel free to send me a DM on Instagram as well. It's EVE86. I'll respond to a message. I may not follow, but I'll respond to messages. That makes sense. You have to have that balance and those boundaries. (laughs) Well, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you a thousand times for coming on and chatting with us. We're so grateful for all the knowledge and insights that you provided. And we are 100% positive that our listeners will feel the same. So, And I'm pretty Um, sure they will hit you up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They will definitely reach out to you because you're very, very knowledgeable and we could definitely learn a lot from you. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, ladies, for the opportunity. I really appreciate being able to share the information I have. And I think y'all do great work. Thank you. Thank you.
if you ever wanted to find anyone that has ever been shouted out on this show and all 300 plus wedding vendors that have been shouted out, which is a wild to even think of, but you will be able to find them on find.huidu.com. So if you don't remember what we said, or you're listening to an episode later and you want to look that person up, or maybe you don't remember how to spell their name or what have you, you can always go there and easily find them. So just a little mental note. But Tania, where can people find us? You can find us on whoido.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, and you can find Ashley at Demi Tosh on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at Bell Story on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you again. We'll be back. See y'all next week.